0: Our gracious God and merciful Father, we come to you to submit ourselves to you, to recognize you as the Lord of heaven and earth, recognize you as the one who speaks uh, your word of grace into our souls. We ask that as we hear your word, uh, that it would take root that nothing would uh, get in its way, that uh, as uh, Jesus taught, that neither persecution would hinder it nor the cares of this life choke it out. Uh, We pray that your word would be planted deep within our hearts and that it would produce a fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. We pray that you would do this by your Spirit, uh, recognizing, Father, that uh, Neither me nor any one of us can make Your Word fruitful in our own lives, but we need You. We need Your Spirit to be at work, and so we come to You uh, reliant upon Your Spirit to do His work in our hearts, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah chapter 4. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, "'What are these, my Lord?' Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, "'Do you not know what these are?' I said, "'No, my Lord.' Then he said to me, "'This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit,' says the Lord of hosts. "'Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain.'" He shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel." These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. I have been increasingly realizing that I struggle with being anxious. I get anxious about finances. I get anxious about the church. I get anxious about my boys. I get anxious about my callings. Am I being faithful as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a friend? I get anxious when there are just too many moving parts in life. I get anxious when there are too many unknowns. And when I look deep, I notice that my anxiety flows out of a small view of God. Of course, my teaching on God is big, my doctrine of God is big, but when I am alone, I often feel just that, alone. I feel as if Christ has ascended and left me to do the Christian life on my own. My anxiety then flows out of self-reliance. I have to make this happen. I have to figure this out. It's on my shoulders. Who else is going to do this? When I think like this, the Christian life becomes a burden because I am relying on myself and not the presence and the power of God in the person of His Spirit. Well, Zerubbabel was the civil ruler in Israel in the 5th century B.C. There's a lot of background to that that I won't go into this morning, but he was seeking to shepherd Israel and to rebuild the temple. And it will become clear in our text that there was some anxiety some fear, some temptation towards self-reliance in Zerubbabel's day as well. And so to encourage Zerubbabel, God gives Zechariah, the prophet, a vision. It's a vision of a golden lampstand with 49 blazing lights on top. On either side of the lampstand, there was an olive tree feeding the lampstand through two pipes with golden oil to keep the lights burning. You'll notice in verse 4, Zechariah's first response is to say, what in the world does this mean? Which I think should be comforting to the rest of us who wonder the same thing. Well, through this vision and in our passage, God essentially gives Zerubbabel a promise. The power to live the Christian life comes from Christ's spirit. However trivial, However small things may look, God works through the little things to bring about His purposes. The pattern of small things unto glory is worked by the Spirit. And we're going to see that there are three exhortations that really flow out of this text. Three things we have to do if we're going to live in light of what we find in this text. And that is embrace your weakness, rely on the Spirit, and get to work. So first, embrace your weakness. The backdrop to our passage is this. Again, I won't go into everything, but we need a little bit. Uh, Israel was a nation chosen by God and planted in the promised land. What's more, God took up residence in her midst, causing his name to dwell in the temple, and there God met with his people. God told Israel if they would keep his covenant and obey his laws, they would live long in the land. But if they broke his covenant and turned to the false gods of the nations, the land would vomit them out. Well, if you read the Old Testament, you will see what happened. Israel's faithless rebellion led to exile. Jerusalem was sieged, the temple was destroyed, and God's people were taken to Babylon. Now, as bleak as that looked, God did not forget his promises. And so after 70 years, as promised, God began to bring his people back into the land. Within a few years, the foundation of the temple was laid. But the temple itself, the place of God's dwelling with his people, remained in ruins. Externally, there was opposition. Internally, there was doubts and discouragement. Ezra recounts that when the foundation was laid, many who had seen the previous temple wept. And the people of the land, the non-Israelites, discouraged them and tried to put an end to their plans, even going so far as to create false accusations to turn the Persian kings against them. God had made big promises, restoration to the land, God dwelling again in the midst of his people. But life was such that the people began to ask, where is God Where are these promises he talked about? Where are the miracles he used to perform? We seem so small, so insignificant. We have little to show for our work. Is God with us anymore? Well, this comes to the foreground in the middle of our passage in verse 7 with the image of a mountain. We read this Who are you, O great mountain? The mountain is an image of an obstacle of some kind. It might refer to the mountain of rubble, which still stood where the temple once was. It might refer to the opposition from the surrounding peoples to the work of building the temple. It might refer to the discouragement that God's people faced. Whatever it is, it comes to concrete form in verse 10 when Zechariah talks about the day of small things. You see, whatever mountain loomed large over Zerubbabel's work, the effect was the work was incomplete. He had little to show for his years in Jerusalem. People had looked at the work that had been done and wept because of how insignificant it seemed in light of what once was. What is our temptation in such moments? Typically, we either knuckle down and try harder or just give up in despair. And I'm not sure which Zerubbabel was tempted towards. He has to be told in verse 6, not by power nor by might. Perhaps he was tempted to self-reliance. He also had to be told that the mountain would be made a plain in verse 7. So perhaps he was tempted to despair in light of the obstacles. If he was like me, uh, he probably veered back and forth between the two depending on the day and the hour. But make no mistake, in the face of the mountain of obstacles, the first thing Zerubbabel had to do was embrace his weakness, not by power nor by might. You don't have what it takes, Zerubbabel, not in yourself. Israel was small. Their work was incomplete. They lived in a day of small things. What God was calling Zerubbabel to do, he could not do in his own power. He was, in this sense, powerless and weak. Now, Zerubbabel is not the only leader in Scripture who is weak. In fact, we could go from leader to leader and recount their weaknesses, couldn't we? And when we turn the page to the New Testament, the life of Jesus himself seemed like a day of small things. It was a picture of weakness. Jesus was God in the flesh, but his life appeared insignificant. Think about it. He was born in obscurity in the little town of Bethlehem. He had a manger for his bed. His first 30 years or so were seemingly unimportant, unnoteworthy. While he gathered a significant following in his day, by the end, almost all had left him. One of his closest friends betrayed him. Another denied him. He was nailed to a tree by Rome like so many nameless criminals before him. At his bitter end, barely more than a handful of women stood by his side. From the world's perspective, his insignificant life was coming to an insignificant end. This is not even the day of small things. There is no kernel of hope here, nothing to grab hold of, no hint of something more, no first fruits of what's to come, only death and the grave. For his followers, all hope was lost. Where was God? In this tragedy. Now, perhaps this is where you live. Life some days feels like death. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you have little to show for it. You feel like you haven't grown as you ought to have grown. Your hope is flagging. Week after week, depression sets in. You experience war without and fears within. Externally, a culture of opposition at school, or at work, or maybe even in your home. Internally, within your heart, you you feel like there's slow growth and waning zeal. And you might begin to ask, is God in this? Am I on my own here? The, The world is a mess. My heart is a mess. The church is a mess. You look at the Christian life and you think, do I have what it takes to keep going? Do I have what it takes to persevere? As Paul put it, Uh, am I sufficient for these things? And the answer, of course, is no. We are not sufficient for the work set before us. In fact, one of the problems is we think we are. Discouragement in life is as often as not an effect of looking to ourselves. If it's all on your shoulders, well, you can't stop the influence of the world You can't produce change in your heart or fruit through your hands. You can't draw friends and loved ones to Jesus or bring health to broken relationships. You can't even do with one small sin in your own power. If you look at the task at hand and then at the resources you have within yourself, fear and discouragement and depression are the results. If I see the mountain of obstacles arrayed against me, one temptation is just to give up. Well, let me encourage you to do something counterintuitive. Don't knuckle down and don't give up. Embrace your weakness. Own it. You are weak. You don't have what it takes, but that's okay. Because God says, not by power nor by might. That's not the way his kingdom grows. That's not the way his fruit is born. Not by power nor by might. Well, in Zerubbabel's day, it was into this time of discouragement and opposition, of weakness and of small things, that Zechariah receives his vision, which brings us to our second point, rely on the Spirit. And here's where we get into the weeds of this prophetic vision. Uh, Zechariah's vision begins with a lampstand, and uh, it's a golden lampstand with a bowl on the top and... Uh, we will see it has 49 flames on top of that bowl. Now, the word for lampstand is menorah. It's the same word used for the lampstand in the temple. The lampstand imagery in Scripture is not really hard to understand. What does a lampstand do? It's a place to put a lamp. I know that doesn't seem profound, but it's important. You have the stand, and atop the stand you have the lamp or the light. What does light picture in Scripture? Almost always, if not always, the manifest glory of the presence of God in some form. Whether the fire of the burning bush or the light that blinded Saul on the Damascus road. So then a lampstand is the place of the manifest glory of the presence of God. Now this lampstand is a bit different from the menorah in the temple. Uh, For one, on the top, there are seven lamps, each with seven lips or spouts. That is, seven lamps, each with seven wicks, for a total of 49 blazing lights. Whatever this lampstand means, already we can see that God is going to do something more brilliant, more beautiful, more wonderful than what he had done in the past. If the seven lamps atop the menorah in the temple represented the perfection of the glory of God, what we have here is perfection squared. We had glory in the temple, but there was a greater glory to come. Haggai tells us as much in the book of Haggai uh, chapter 2 verse 9. He says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And so if the lampstand represents the, the presence of the glory of God in the midst of his people, greater glory was coming. Now, this whole vision is about encouraging Zerubbabel, the civil leader of the day, in in building the temple. Well, what was the temple? The temple was the place where God met with his people, the place of the manifest glory of the presence of God. And so the lampstand here stands in as a part for the whole. Uh, We'll see in a minute that the temple building work would be accomplished, which is to say that the lamp will shine again. How can the lamp shine again? Only if the lamps are fueled by oil. Hence verse 12, uh, the two olive trees are pouring golden oil into the lampstand. Oil in scripture is almost always a picture of anointing with the spirit. Samuel anoints first Saul and later David with oil and immediately the spirit comes upon them. The oil feeding the lampstand is a sign of the presence of the spirit. How is the temple going to be rebuilt? How will the glory of God take up residence among his people once more? By the power and presence of the person of the Spirit of God. Which brings us then to the the final piece of the imagery, which is the olive trees. So you have this lampstand with oil being fed into it to feed the lamps. And on either side of the uh, the lampstand are two olive trees, one on the right and one on the left. Where does the oil come from? It comes from these two olive trees. Now, there are two main options for for who these trees are meant to symbolize in Zechariah's day. They are called sons of oil in verse 14, which the ESV translates anointed ones. Now, uh, Meredith Klein and others reject that translation, saying that these trees are the anointers, right? They're pouring out the oil, not the anointed Therefore, he says, they are the prophets, the ones who do the anointing. Potentially, then, the two trees refer to Haggai and Zechariah, the two prophets who were active in Zerubbabel's day. And this works well for two reasons. First, it holds word and spirit together. How is the spirit poured out on the people so they can complete their work? Through the word of the prophets. This also works because in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, there are two witnesses who prophesy, who are called in Revelation 11, the two olive trees. And so the two olive trees in Revelation 11 stand for prophetic witness. Now, other people reject this understanding and hold on to the similarity between the phrase sons of oil and anointed ones and find their reference then in the immediate context Who were the anointed ones in the Old Testament? Priests and kings. Uh, Chapter 3 of Zechariah was about the high priest, Joshua. Chapter 4 of Zechariah is about Zerubbabel, the civil leader in the line of David. Now, he never becomes a king, but he is playing that kingly role. So this works because it, it flows from the immediate context of Zechariah, that these two olive trees stand for the priest and the king of that day. And if this is the right understanding, the point is when the priests and kings faithfully do their work, they bring blessing, the blessing of God on the people of God. Now, I'm not sure how to solve this question, and I'm not really sure that we have to. I I like the imagery of it referring to a priest and a king, uh, which then points us to two aspects of Jesus' work, his priestly and kingly work. But uh, the, the Revelation 11 passage pushes me to see it as referring to the role of the prophets as anointers through their prophetic witness. Though uh, the immediate context in some ways should take priority as we're trying to understand uh, this image, what we have here is only an implication from the context, while Revelation seems to be interpreting Zechariah for us. But either way, what we have is the leadership in Israel, whether the prophets, or the priests and kings, they are the source of blessing for the people. The the work will come to completion through the ministry of Israel's leadership as the Spirit works through them. God's promise to Zerubbabel was this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The nameless great mountain shall become a plain. The work will be finished to the glory of God. God would work through the day of small things, And the day of small things will become a day of rejoicing when people will shout grace, grace to it. However insignificant the present moment seemed, God would work by his spirit to do something glorious. And so the message to Zerubbabel of this chapter is either through the word of the prophets or through the ministry of Zerubbabel himself and Joshua the priest, God's spirit will come to complete his work. Despite whatever obstacles Zerubbabel might face, despite the seeming insignificance of the present, God would finish his work by his Spirit. The pattern of small things unto glory is worked by the Spirit. The temple would be rebuilt. The lamp would shine glorious again. This pattern of small things unto glory by the Spirit, it was true in Zerubbabel's day. It's true for us, but it's true for us only because it is true in the gospel. Now think about it. Jesus, we've already said, was crucified in weakness, the ultimate day of small things, ending in death and the grave until the third day, when the Spirit of the living God raised Jesus from the dead. The pattern of small things unto glory is worked by the Spirit once again. And the Spirit raised Jesus up, and he ascended into heaven, where he sits in glory, reigning at the Father's right hand. Christ died in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. But that's not the end of his work. Jesus, as prophet, priest, and king, had completed his earthly work. And as a reward for his faithfulness, Jesus received from the Father the fullness of the promised Spirit, and then On the day of Pentecost, he pours out his spirit on the church. We read about this in Acts chapter 2 where Peter says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. See, Jesus lives out the pattern of the anointed one who experiences the small things, the, the weakness and the dishonor of the cross, before receiving the glory of the fullness of the Spirit in His resurrection, and then the anointed one becomes the anointer. And Jesus pours out His Spirit on the church. And the Spirit is given to build the church. Now, to understand this, we need to make one more connection between the imagery in this chapter and the New Testament. Uh, A day was coming when God would again manifest the presence of His glory by His Spirit. And this manifestation of his glory would be even greater than what happened in the temple. Not seven lamps, but seven times seven. Well, when would this happen? The promise in in verses 7 through 10 is that Zerubbabel would finish building the temple. And that was certainly a fulfillment of what we find here, but that is not the end. In the New Testament, Jesus comes as the light of the world, the true temple, the place of the visible manifestation of the glory of God. But actually, that was not the end. When we get to the New Testament, we are told that the lampstand imagery refers to the church. John has a vision recorded in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, in which he sees seven lampstands. And Jesus says to John in in Revelation 1 that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And this makes sense, right? Remember, we said the lampstand was the place of the manifestation of the glory of God's presence, In the Old Testament, that happened in the lampstand, in the tabernacle, among other places. But in the New Testament, that happens in the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is building a greater and more glorious temple, the church, the people of God. Jesus, in the line of Zerubbabel, the temple builder, is the greater temple builder, building the greater temple. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.22, in Christ we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. How can the church, the New Testament temple, which quite frankly often looks insignificant, weak, divided, small, how can we be light? Not by might nor by power, but by God's Spirit. When the Spirit is poured into us, the Spirit's light shines through us. Now, you may know uh, the the acronym GIGO. It stands for garbage in, garbage out. Uh, It means what you get out of something is only as good as what you put into it. What happens when oil is put into the lamp? It burns brightly and shines for all to see. What happens when the Spirit takes up residence in the church? We see the glory of God's presence in our midst. The Spirit is given to build up the church. Uh, You see this as early as the book of Exodus, uh, when the artisan, Basilel, is given the Spirit to build the tabernacle. And New Testament gifts are given for the same reason. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus anointed the church with the Spirit and lit the lampstand on fire. Literally, tongues of fire sat upon the heads of the fledgling church. The lampstand was lit more gloriously than in the temple. And this lampstand would not stay hidden in an otherwise dark room, but would go out to bring light to a dark world. The Spirit was given to build the church. Spiritual gifts are given to build the church, whether through leaders, as in Ephesians 4.11, or gifts given to every member in 1 Corinthians 12. They are for building up the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.12, and each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, 1 Corinthians 12.7. How do we build up the church so that it shines as a light in a dark place? Not by might, nor by power, but by the Spirit of the risen and ascended Jesus. By the power and gifting of the Spirit, He does His work through us. And what this means is embracing weakness does not mean you simply give up. It means you learn the truth that Paul learned, that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Though we are not sufficient for these things, as Zerubbabel was not sufficient, God can make us sufficient, and Jesus does that by pouring out his Spirit. And let me mention two things at this point. First, I want you to notice the bigness of this vision. You know, we often get so caught up in our own struggles, our own trials, our own agendas, our own dreams. We want God to give us a pep talk and a few life hacks and, then, and help us accomplish our dreams. But Jesus is building his church, his temple, the dwelling place of God with men. Jesus does not come to give us tips on our story, but to take us up into his If you are downcast and discouraged about your Christian life, maybe what you need is to lift your eyes and see that Jesus is doing something bigger. Now, if you don't know Jesus, let me encourage you to look to him and trust in his work. He is restoring that which was lost, communion with God through the Spirit in the church. Your story may feel hopeless, but there is a bigger story at play. Let your heart get caught up in that story. That said, God is doing a work in the hearts and lives of his children. What are you relying on for the Christian life? Well, how can you know what you're relying on? Just consider this, right? How do you respond to the oppositions and discouragements of life? How do you respond to the day of small things, to little fruit, to slow spiritual growth? Just the other day I ran into a number of really relatively minor inconveniences and my heart immediately went to anger and despair. Why? Because in that moment I was trusting in myself, my strength to accomplish my purposes and it wasn't going well. So what does it look like to rely on the spirit? See, we think that relying on the spirit means something mysterious and magical but here's what it looks like. It looks like active dependence upon God. You self-consciously rely on the Spirit by using the means of grace that He has given. You look to to the Scriptures for wisdom to face life's challenges, and then you step out in obedience to those same Scriptures. You cry out in prayer for help and grace and strength. You partake of the sacrament, drawing near to God, trusting the promise that he will draw near to you. And you do those things not as mechanical means by which you accomplish your ends, but trusting in the spirit to accomplish his ends through his means. To use the means in faith, looking for the spirit to work through them, that is what it looks like to rely on the spirit. And as we step out in weakness Independence upon the Spirit, we will, as as, uh, Paul says in Philippians, shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Only then will we be the light of the world, giving light to all in the house. Well, one more thing, much more briefly. Embrace your weakness, rely on the Spirit, and then get to work. Imagine if Zerubbabel had said this, okay, Now I get it. I understand. God's work is accomplished by God's Spirit, not by human might or power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. Got it. Uh, So I'll just sit back and watch the Spirit work. You see, we're often tempted to veer from kind of a self-reliant despair to a hopeful passivity. This is just the, the let go and let God approach to the Christian life. But that is not what our text says. In Zechariah 4, verse 9, the, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. By God's power, Zerubbabel would complete his work. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But the builders must build. As Paul put it, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God works in you. Friends, God has called us to shine as lights, to build up the church that we might shine as light, but he has not left us to ourselves to do it. Jesus has given his spirit to accomplish his work. Embrace your weakness, rely on the spirit, and then get to work until the church shines as a lamp in a dark place to the glory of God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of his Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would show us that we are weak, but you are strong, and help us to live in constant dependence and reliance upon the Holy Spirit, to your glory and honor,